What up, what up? You are now listening to Once Upon the 785, the dopest podcast in the Midwest. I'm your host, Georgie350, and as always, let's get into it. Bitch! What up, and welcome to another episode of Once Upon. A seven eight five, and as always, I'm your host, Georgie three fifty, and today is episode sixteen, where we will cover Operation High Jump, Operation Paperclip, and Operation Deep Freeze. But before we get started, I would like to say, if you enjoy the podcast and would like to help us grow, for four ninety nine a month. You can not only support the podcast, but you can also get exclusive access to the video version of the show. And I'm planning a pretty awesome show for my first exclusive subscription-only episode. So get ready for that in the near future. And if you'd like to come on the show, you can now email me at onceupon a 785 at proton.me. And don't worry, that'll be in the show description. And I'd be more than happy to set something up if you want to come on the show. And just in case you didn't realize, here soon, all videos will only be available through subscriptions. Also, while I have your attention, if you do enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and go ahead and give us a like or leave a review on whatever platform you listen on because it helps the algorithm reach more people like yourself who might enjoy the show too. But never feel obligated to do anything, just enjoy the episode. And with that, let's get started with Operation High Jump. I didn't actually mean to hit that one, but anyway, before we start, I'd like to give a shout out to Reaper Apparel Company and Coca Brewery. And if you like dope clothes and want to look fly while also supporting a positive message, you can use promo code Georgie350 at reaperapparelco.com to get 10% off your order or you can go to cocoaburry.com and use the same promo code georgie350 at checkout to get 30% off your order. Now, let's get into the episode. Oh yeah. Operation High Jump. Some key notes. Um, it took place from late 1946 to early 1947. 
um, the purpose. It was sponsored by the United States Navy. Operation High Jump aimed to establish the military's presence in, in Antarctica to train personnel and test equipment. Allegedly. Um, the operation involved multiple naval vessels, aircraft, submarines, and around 4,700 personnel. Um, Admiral Byrd led the expedition, which faced challenging weather conditions, logistical issues, and equipment failures. Um, over the years, a bunch of conspiracy theories have arisen regarding this operation, with claims suggesting secret Nazi bases or encounters with extraterrestrial beings. So, some pretty crazy stuff with Operation High Jump. And, um, I have a link here. It's for beforeitsnews.com. Um, they have a something that I wanted to read. Um, the article's called, Here's What the U.S. Government Found, Then Covered Up in Antarctica. And there was a video, but I don't think the video's there anymore. And here, I'm going to try turning my gain down. Maybe that's better. Oh, yeah. Way better. And sorry, I'm reading all this off my phone because it's way easier than trying to mess with my laptop. And I'm vaping, so do with that what you will. Okay, so on this article, they say Operation High Jump, officially titled the United States Navy Antarctic Development Program. 1946 to 1947, was a United States Navy operation organized by Admiral Byrd. I pretty much already said all this. And Admiral Richard H. Cruzen, USN, Commanding Officer, Task Force 68. Operation High Jump commenced August 26, 1946, and ended in late February. 1947. Although Byrd was chosen to lead the mission for rather specific reasons, which they will explain later, he was quite qualified and favored and favorite amongst American favored amongst the American public, the perfect candidate of choice by U.S. Navy and top brass. Additionally, to Byrd's recruitment, another man, Rear Admiral Richard Cruzen, was selected to head up the task force. And make no mistake, this was an unusually bold move for the American military at the time, as people, nations, and even world economies were still volatile from war's aftermath. So they say, I'm probably not going to read all through this, but 
They say you have to ask the following questions. Why would the U.S. military be seeking to expand so many resources at the risk of great collateral lost loss to explore such a harsh region of planet Earth as Antarctica? So, they say, what was the rush? What did they know? Well, they find out that a lot of details regarding Operation High Jump have been carefully tucked away over the years. Wikipedia explains little about the mission, officially titled United States Navy Antarctic Development Program. This is what Wikipedia says. A United States naval operation organized by Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd, officer in charge, Task Force 68, led by Admiral Richard H. Cruzen, USN commanding officer, Task Force 68, they say it commenced August 26, 1946, and ended in late February 1947. Task Force 68 included 4,700 men, 13 ships, and multiple aircraft. The primary mission of Operation High Jump was to establish the Antarctic Research Base, Little America 4. They go on to say High Jump's objectives, according to the U.S. Navy's report on the operations were as follows. Training personnel and testing equipment in frigid conditions. Consolidating and extending United States sovereignty over the largest practicable area of the Antarctic continent. This was publicly denied as a goal even before the expedition ended. Um, also, determining the feasibility of establishing, maintaining, and utilizing bases in the Antarctic, and investigating possible base sites. Um, also, developing techniques for establishing, maintaining, and utilizing air bases on ice. With practical attention to later applicably, later applicably of such techniques. To operations in interior, interior Greenland, where conditions are comparable to those in the Antarctic. I think I butchered that, but they're trying to see if the operations are the same in Greenland as Antarctica. I don't know. Moving on. Amplifying existing stores of knowledge of hydrographic geographic, geological, meteorological, and electromagnetic propagation conditions in the area, and supplementary objectives of the Nanuk expedition. The Nanuk operation was a smaller equivalent conducted off eastern Greenland. They go on to say, interesting Interestingly enough, many of the actual mission's details were shrouded by secrecy, secrecy, hidden from the American public, which leads us to where we are now. All right, so they're going to go on. I'm just going to go over this. Admiral Byrd was a hero. He pioneered 
technology that would be foundation for modern polar exploration and investigation. He had been repeatedly decorated and had undertaken many expeditions to Antarctica and was also the first to allegedly fly over both poles. But they say the military was still under strict command of Admiral Richard Cruzen. They say, unfortunately, this, the ship's central group entered the ice packs off the Ross Sea on 31st of December 1946 and found conditions as bad as had been noted for over a century. Sea breakers such as the U.S. CGC Burton Island, a ship that had only recently been commissioned and was still undergoing sea trials off the Californian coast when Operation High Jump was launched, launched, fought to cut away through the ice to help the men land. So, I mean, think about it. Just a little side note. Why would they call it Operation High Jump? You know, I'm pretty sure I have that video. There's two to three hundred foot tall ice walls. And I do believe they encompass our flat plane. But they go on to say on December 2nd, 1946, Cruisin once more set sail for the Antarctic continent this time as Task Force Commander under Admiral Byrd of the Navy's Arctic Development Project, also known as Hijump. Cruisen led a force of 13 ships carrying some 4,000 men, including meteorologists, zoologists, physics, and experts from oceanography institutes into the adventure of a lifetime. They say, besides looking for new scientific data, another purpose of the expedition was to train Navy personnel and to test standard Navy ships and other equipment in colder weather operations. So, pretty much what this is getting into is the Hollow Earth theory, which will go into the hollow earth theory later on but that's where i'm going to stop it here on operation high jump and i do believe i do have a video it is from the internet archive it's called the secret land and uh The Secret Land is a 1948 American documentary film about an American expedition codenamed Operation High Jump to explore Antarctica. It actually won the Academy Award for Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. This documentary, filmed entirely by military photographers, reencounts the U.S. Navy's 1946-47 expedition to Antarctica. So, 
going to be pretty good. So, don't go anywhere. We're going to go ahead and get into the video. Penguins and their big black mountains, the ships, are on 24-hour duty. First job to secure all mooring lines. Big timbers sunk deep in the ice serve as anchors. They're called dead men in sea parlance, perhaps because they're buried. Slip toggles are rigged for quick release in case ice forces an emergency getaway. Unloading, reconnaissance planes burst, next hauling equipment. The Marine Corps weasels. Heavy-duty caterpillars and trucks, 40 in all. Here are no port facilities. Navy shows its self-sufficiency as it did throughout the war, operating at sea without bases or with improvised bases. Here are no docks or roads, yet all freight aboard three heavily laden ships is hauled two miles over the ice up to Little America. Dogs next. Barking, tugging, boatload of huskies. And the pups. Growing fatter and bigger every day. All are happy with the welcome smell of snow in their nostrils. This is home. This is fun. But this is work, too. Time is short. The dogs must haul their share of the tonnage. Halt. Trouble ahead. Pressure ridges blocked the way inland to Little America. Even the largest caterpillars are stalled. The call goes out for dynamite crews, Navy's trained demolition teams, seasoned on enemy beaches. They must blast the 50-foot ridges, clear the way to meet the expedition timetable. Ridges are deep. Blasting takes hours. Sea bees and their bulldozers follow, smooth out the road for the big cats. In two hours, they bridge crevasses 100 feet deep. And so 10,000 tons of gear brought down by the cargo ships, start moving up to Little America. Work goes steadily forward. CBs, with all hands helping, use every one of the 24 hours of daylight in the South Pole summer. Caterpillars with snowshoe oversized treads accomplish in hours the work that in old days hundreds of dogs could do only in weeks. Airstrips, smoothed out with drags, take high priority. Bird has flashed word from the Philippine Sea now standing by off the pack ice, that he's ready to fly his R-4Ds in. It's up to the work parties to make up the time lost in the pack ice. Up to these men to work while gusty winds drive flesh-cutting gravel-like snow across the open, or to dig deep for storehouse foundations. Food dumps grow steadily. Here is the favorite hangout of the veteran husky, Ricky, born at Little America 12 years before and still hungry. Each hour brings other buildings to completion. Knockdown Wanigans grow magically. The air headquarters Quonset is ready. Snow blocks are dug out for windbreaker walls. These blocks are the adobe of Little America. Good idea, talks the sidewalk superintendent of the base. Good idea. These big penguins do right well to bear in mind that when she blows down here, she's liable to blow your eyelashes off. The little Adelie shows no fear. What? No, silly idea. The ships are all but empty. Caterpillars and go-devils live up to their wartime good name. Within 70 hours, C 
CBs are hauling in the last 500 tons of essentials. Only a few more cases to be broken out. The local waterworks is the pride of the CBs. Three GI cans of snow produce one can of water, purest in the world. Keep your furnace going, it makes steam, which melts snow, which makes water. Simple. Simple, once CB Engineering in Washington had figured it out before ever the first ship left port. And now, the ordered streets of a tent city that is Little America the Fourth come into being where three days before the primeval snow lay unbroken. The church flag, first Sunday, signifies a pause for prayers. After the last mass, and after the Protestant and Jewish services, the off-duty sailors have but one thought. Transportation has but one terminal, the mess hall, best dinner of the week, as ancient Navy tradition always has decreed. Admirals and captains wait their turn in the chow line with the men. Inside, plates are loaded. Roast beef, rich gravy, high mounds of mashed potatoes, flaky pie. Life looks up again. Cigarette, good coffee. Five miles east of Little America, a seal herd, 500 strong, has its feeding ground amongst pressure ridges and in deep crevasses. Ricky, as a pup, played the game of run, seal, run. Hasn't forgotten. The steel wallops with his tail. Ricky's 12-year-old teeth are not so good on the slippery, wet hide of the 600-pound Waddell. Mr. Steele decides he's had enough. Settles down his escape hatch to the water below. Just time. The only seals killed are for dog meat. Especially good because it ensures against scurvy. The pups smell their dinner coming and let their handler plainly know they want it. Right now. They're only a few months old and forever hungry. Yet soon they will be pulling more than their weight in the sledge traces. Like their meat red, they fight for it. The flagship flashes word by radio to the carrier Philippine Sea. Base ready, weather suitable. On the carrier, six planes, triple checked, are ready for their moment of destiny. Admiral Byrd has given the pilots a final briefing. Everything depends on split-second timing. Pilots, man your plane. No 3,000-foot runway here. Only a scant 300 feet. Jet propulsion is their reliance. Crewmen attach jet containers, four to a plane. These JATO bottles are packed with flaming power. In the critical 10 seconds at takeoff, they give the kick-up of two added engines. <laughs> Bird is airborne in exactly 100 feet. Admiral Bird and his companion plane will fly the 800-mile flight first. The others await his orders. At Little America, cameramen and Admiral Cruzen wait anxiously. There comes Bird. Cruzen can relax now. Skis work perfectly. Carefully calculate the drag of the wheels serves only to shoot up a plume of snow. Bird greets his son, Dickie Jr., first, here following Dad's footsteps. They watch plane number two come in safely. 
Bird tells Cruzen, good to be home again. Cruzen has urgent news. There's a terrific storm brewing, only 10 hours more of safe flying. Bird radios the carrier, launch all planes as soon as possible. By midnight, the Philippine Sea has the remaining four planes ready. They must risk a takeoff in darkness before the terror of the storm strikes. <laughs> Daylight finds the planes over the pack ice. With frozen depth below and weather closing in, navigation becomes tricky. This close to the pole, the magnetic compass is no help. At the base, men scan the gray skies, looking, and finding only the blackness of the approaching storm, now visible to the east. If the planes don't make it within an hour, but in they come, one by one, to land in the last remnants of clear light. Each landing is the first on the ice for each pilot. These men are the first ever to fly big planes into the Antarctic. Well, on previous expeditions, the planes were freighted in, assembled, and only then were they flown. These Navy and Marine Corps flyers have been bred on stormy going. Their long experience and, above all, the Navy's relentless training in all details brings them in, but with little time to spare. The blizzard hits. 100 miles an hour, scouring across the Sestruti. In storms such as this, many brave explorers have died. With the first abatement of the storm, work parties head for the planes. The blizzard is 40 hours old. Wind has become barrel. The expedition flight schedules are days behind. They must get the heaters going, clean out the frost. The Antarctic offers no quick machine service as on standard Navy airfields. Fuel for the heaters must be hand-dragged, hand-pumped, hand-fed, with the temperature far below freezing. The chow wagon, the never-failing CV tractor, gives the work parties a lift back to the mess tent for hot coffee, food, and water. Only the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and Army cameramen who made this official record know the price they paid for these blizzard films. They covered the Pacific battles for posterity. This cold day, they froze their whiskers to make these first color films of an Antarctic blizzard. Little America digs out. The planes still stand on the line uninjured. Icicles and snow to be cleared off, but no plane blown away. Lashings held. Tent city intact, 
proved out the technique of survival evolved by Bird in a lifetime of exploration. Not one tent went down. No matter how great the pressure of work, the flag must be raised with a ceremony which is its due. Admiral Byrd declares Little America the Fourth in full operating commission. The Admiral and the party ride weasels 12 miles south to visit his earliest camp, marked by the radio towers. Little America the First, now 40 feet under the snows of 17 years. And above it, Little America the Second, 25 feet under the snows fallen since 1935. Captain Boyd, United States Marine Corps, ties on a safety line. While Admiral Byrd and three veterans of his previous expeditions watch, Boyd inches his carcass down the old ventilating hatch. It stood 20 feet in the air when it was put up 12 years before. He pokes a stick up as a marker for the main hatch. Now all hands, the Admiral included, have a chance to go look-see. Below, the old-timers find a lantern that lights at once. No manner of other gear. For here in Antarctica, there is no decay, no rust, no dust, not even germs. Fruits, vegetables, meats, all good after 17 years. Small wonder Bird preaches that one day, Antarctica may be the world's storehouse to keep the seven years surplus for the seven lean years. Bird, bringing with him the old corn cob he'd forgotten in 1930, comes up last. He meets heavy going, but he makes it the hard way and seems to like it. Aboard the Mount Olympus, the Navy tries out one of the most important experiments assigned the expedition. Can men survive in freezing water? Men from Mars, members of a special underwater demolition team, wear the new cold water rubber survival suit. In contrast to these skylarking youngsters eating ice cream in the ice, men in ordinary clothing are paralyzed in six minutes and die very quickly thereafter. Yet these sailors, wearing only underwear beneath their survival suits, stay in half an hour and come up chipper and warm. On the sunny afterdeck of the Mount Olympus, the expedition's prize penguin catch, the big emperors, are living the life of Penguin Riley. They grow four feet tall, weigh up to 80 pounds, and are the only creatures who live throughout the year on Antarctica. Eons ago, they flew. In time, their wings evolved into swimming fins. Their deep feathers are the warmest known. Their feet, thick leather-like pads. On these, they lay their single egg and tuck it up within the body feathers for warmth, to hatch it. In captivity, they must have their vitamins. Keeping them alive for the return voyage is quite a problem, for their bloodstreams have no germ resistance. Their necks are ball-bearing. Strangely enough, the smaller captive penguins prefer their fish fillets. They won't eat live fish out of a pail. Rockhopper penguins are the clowns of the Antarctic. Twenty inches high, cocky yellow eyebrows, sassy, and forever hungry. As the men find out, they'll eat their weight in fish every three days. The gathering of scientific data ranks high in expedition plans. Admiral Byrd says goodbye and good luck to an over-ice expedition which is to probe deep into the Rockefeller Mountains, 300 miles southeast. Two LBTs hauling supply sledges strike out into the white darkness. Their mileage checked by bicycle wheel counters at stern. 
In the mountain rocks, they will seek minerals and ancient petrified vegetation. Hourly, they will record important aerological data. But exploration by plane has priority one. A million and a half square miles are to be explored and mapped, and the oncoming winter soon will end flying weather. The wheels come off. Both takeoffs and landings on the ice must be made by skis alone, delicately balanced to feather in the wind, yet strong to stand the shattering shock of landings. Organized exploration on a scale hitherto undreamed of calls for precision timing. Each plane is serviced on exact schedule with 1,200 gallons of high-test gas and with preheated oil tested to function at 80 below. A pressure tank, especially designed for operations in deep cold, pumps the oil into the planes. Daily flights begin. Each plane has a definite sector to explore, a definite timetable, a definite radio report schedule. While the weather holds, flights operate around the clock. For emergencies, the LVTs cache provisions and fuel at the limit of their range. To aviators forced down, to rescue planes sent out to bring them in, these cairns may offer the one hope and may mean ultimate survival. 1,200 miles to the east, the eastern group vessels and planes are exploring the mysterious Phantom Coast. Aboard the destroyer Bonson, the commander of the eastern group, Captain George Dupec, makes an exploration voyage. He sails close in to Mount Erebus, 14,000 feet above the sea. It is the only known active volcano near the South Pole. Captain Dufek, his mission accomplished, returns to rendezvous with the seaplane tender Pine Island. Personnel transfers to the destroyer must be made by breaches buoy because of rough seas. This officer would probably prefer a boat. The deep roll and the destroyer's outward flaring bow force the handling crew to wait for the exact moment to haul inboard lest the man be dashed against the ship's side and kill. It is Captain Dupac's turn next. The line is set higher. The seas run stronger. The ships roll dangerously apart. The line slacks, then snaps taut, and breaks. A 50-foot plunge downward. Dupac disappears. Where is the lifeboat? Men jump to station. Lower away. Hurry, hurry. Eight minutes in this icy water means death. Speed is the only hope. Boat shears clear. Heads out fast to the rescue. Captain Dufek reappears. He has managed to inflate his life jacket. Seven minutes gone. Dufek grabs the lifeline. A seaman clutches him. By a margin of seconds, he is safe. 1,500 miles west of Little America, the Currituck and her western group are off the Shackleton Ice Shelf, circling the Sunset Coast. The western group commander, Captain Bond, gives pilots and plane crews a last briefing on Antarctic dangers and the technique of survival if forced down. The flight about to start is the longest and most important so far for the western group. Before takeoff, survival gear is checked, gear to keep nine men alive for 100 days. Food, drugs, sleds, sleeping bags. On the water, the great PBM makes her takeoff run. Her jet assist bottles blast. She lifts quickly into the air and circles the Currituck once. Jet assist bottles, their work done, 
I dropped and made the salvo splay. The pilot, Commander David E. Bunker, wipes his frosted windshield, a constant source of trouble in polar flying. He is over the Shackleton Ice Shelf, named for the great English explorer who kept returning to the Antarctic until death so often escaped, kept its rendezvous with him. The smooth shelf roughens. Dark rocks, called nunataks, appear above the ice. Then rugged mountain ranges, as far as the eye can see. Bunger leans forward in amazement. His eyes have caught a sudden and unbelievable change in scenery. The universal white has turned to chocolate brown, dotted with blue. A cameraman goes into action. 300 square miles of land without snow. Land that might be in New Mexico or Arizona. Pictures alone will prove Bunger has discovered a warm oasis in the shadow of the pole. It is for such supreme moments as this that men brave the hardships of exploration. The astounding undreamed of fact is that they are over a chain of warm water lakes whose shores, except for small patches, are free of ice and snow. Commander Bunger circles the largest lake in sight, five miles long. He comes in to make a landing. Water temperatures must be recorded. Samples taken. He finds the water fresh. Temperature 38 degrees Fahrenheit. On the shores are vast deposits of coal and of minerals of the utmost importance to civilization. Aside from their headline discovery, Bunger and his men have another good reason for hustling home to the Curitab. A long-awaited ceremony is in progress. The whole fleet awaits news of the all-Western Beard Derby. The Currituck skipper, Captain Clark, is judge. His salute of the day is... Right corner mustache, first. The captain awards prizes to the winners, enlisted men and officers alike, the champions in the first Antarctic Beard Derby. To the most handsome. For the bushes. To the officer who tried the hardest. The neatest. To the most unique. To the red all Kuratukian. And to the one with the most sexy. At Little America, a warning sounds. The fleet is in sudden danger. It is being frozen in. It may be locked within the Bay of Wales. Here is the treacherous foe. If caught, the ships will be wedged against the barrier, crushed. Here will be the graveyard of the fleet. The Coast Guard icebreaker north wind goes into action, ramming, back, ramming again, break up the crushing flows. Landing craft work frantically to loosen the ice around the ships propellers may turn without shearing off. One by one, the ships are clear, get underway. Bird remains behind with 197 volunteers and grave problems. His most important exploration flights will now lack the powerful directional radio of the Mount Olympus. To get his men out, he must hope the icebreaker can crash her way back in time. Otherwise, he and his men will be frozen in for the nine sunless months of the dark, treacherous Antarctic winter. Marooned, Admiral Byrd and his staff plan the big flight to the South Pole and far beyond. This is the culmination, the last mass flight. Four planes spanning out over a continent of unknown territory larger than Texas, California, and Arizona combined. Over freezing wastes without people, without life, without vegetation. Nature's most formidable challenge to man.
The four planes are gassed up. All controls triple-checked. Motors heat. For they face cold as extreme as 60 below. Unrelenting. Murderous. Photographic units lead the parade of science to the planes. Each is a flying laboratory. The cameras are the trimetrigons and the K-17s that spied out enemy secrets during the war. Now each plane carries 250 pounds of film to record some of nature's last great mysteries. The war's secret radar magnetic detectors are here too, bolted on like bombs. In war, their electronic impulses spotted minefields buried deep under the surface. Now they will read far below the ice, detect and identify minerals, coal, iron, precious ores. Bird gets the words, ready, sir. He boards the leading plane. Gives the command, take off. Crews hasten to rock the ships, thus free the skis frozen to the ice. Now all the work that has gone before, the planning, the task of preparing ships, of training men, the perilous voyage through the ice, now all of these investments of time and sometimes of suffering are coming to focus. Takeoffs for non-stop flights over the desolate, danger-studded wastes of Antarctica. Flights of great distance, the equivalent of, back at home, winging non-stop from the Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico. Aviation is all-important in the Navy's Antarctic exploration, just as aviation is all-important in a modern Navy that must be strong under and above the sea, as well as on it. Out over the shelf ice, Bird leads his four planes in the long climb over pressure ridge areas heading for the polar plateau, 10,000 feet up. Below are no landing fields, only deep crevasses, Pressure ridges a hundred feet high. Instant destruction for a plane forced down. Bird pioneered the first South Pole flight in 1929. He applies again the practice of constant vigilance, careful calculations that assured his earlier successes. Over this cruel country, Bird flies today at three miles a minute. In earlier explorations, three miles in one day was frequently the utmost for Shackleton and Scott for Britain, Amundsen for Norway, and Bird himself for America. Beardmore Glacier, 200 miles long, 50 wide, a thousand feet deep, who knows? Bird checks position by the sun compass. The glacier signals the South Pole itself. Here, Bird drops the flags of the United Nations, carefully boxed, a symbol of America's goodwill to all nations. Now beyond the pole, Bird focuses his cameras and magnetic detectors on land new to him and all mankind. In eastern group waters, Seaplane tender Pine Island swings out a plane, listed on the fleet's roster as Mariner George One. Crew members look out. No shadow of coming disaster troubles their young faces. Captain Caldwell, observer. Lieutenant J.G. Frenchy LeBlanc, pilot in command. Lieutenant J.G. Bill Kearns, co-pilot. Ensign Lopez, navigator. And a crew of five take off to map the treacherous phantom coast. Bird's planes deep into the unknown are the eyes of civilization, recording, evaluating, mapping. Plateaus, mountain ranges with peaks 20,000 feet above sea level. The trimetrigon lenses clicking overlapping exposures every three seconds photograph from horizon to horizon. Coal, a mountain of coal. Bird later declares Antarctic mines, if once tapped, could supply the world's coal needs for centuries.
These official motion pictures can give only a cross-section of the miles of photographic records accumulated on this expedition by the Navy. The exposed mapping film will take five years to assemble. Amplifying these are the radar magnetic detectors, accurately recording mineral discoveries of immense value for the future use of all mankind. England, Norway, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, South American countries, and Soviet Russia are claiming Antarctic territory. The United States recognizes no claim and so far has made no formal claims for itself. But international policies cannot concern the Admiral now. His duty is to keep his flying laboratories functioning, to fulfill his dream of a lifetime. The word gas half gone, sir, comes from the engineer tabulating fuel tank readings. Bird radios his pilots, return to base. By the third leg of their triangular course, the planes head back for Little America. Bird's plane takes the widest swing fuel permits as the lenses of the TriMets continue recording new territory. This is the last big flight. Bird is determined to record the maximum possible. One by one, the planes swing in over Tent City. Flight operations checks them in and safely down. Plane two, plane three, plane four. But not plane one. Bird's plane is yet to be accounted for. Bird is missing. Out over the ice, Bird is in trouble. His starboard engine is cutting out, now stops. His one remaining engine is losing power. The altimeter needle starts dropping down. The plane is losing altitude. All 4D1 to base, all 4D1 to base. Position Q5, engine out, losing altitude. The base prepares for rescue operations. Handicapped by the partial power of one engine, the plane is in jeopardy. Down she drops. Needle drops from 3,000 feet down, threatening peaks around her. A further drop might mean a crash. Only one hope, reduce the load, lighten her at once. Maybe that way, maybe if enough weight goes, maybe she will hold. Already the mountains are above. She is deep in the valley, deep in the shadow of disaster. The needle drops downward from 1,700 feet. Jettison all gear. Only the precious films and records are saved. The gamble is life or death. The altimeter levels off at around 900 feet. Slowly she starts to climb. She is gaining altitude. Pilot signals. Or Three hours later at the base, crippled plane comes into sight. Men peer closely, tense, hushed, as they see the starboard prop dead. One engine landing is tricky at best. With skis on ice, hold your fingers crossed for the pilot. Save, save, good going. The greatest exploration flight of all history has ended in success. The flight beyond the South Pole. The flight beyond imagination.
But over the Pine Island with the Eastern group is the shadow of tragedy. Captain Dufek flashes the word by radio. To Eastern Task Group, from Task Group Commander, Mariner George 1, overdue. This group commenced standard search and rescue operations immediately. Grim men with grave news from Captain Dufek. No time now for jubilation over his own escape. No mood for rejoicing. Bird knows better than any man the tragic import of the message. In the freezing danger of the Antarctic, seconds are hours. Minutes are days. Every resource of the expedition must be mobilized instantly. All planes must take the air. All men stand alert for emergency duty. Over the ice pack, above the open sea, across the barrier. Mariner George 1 is down with men. No radio signals coming through. That means a crash. Search. 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 Wherever the plane is, it must be found. For maddening, anxious days, fog shrouds the area where the accident most likely took place. Men are frantic, yet daily at their own request, at their urging, in fact, the crew of the Pine Island gathers for prayer service. On the 13th day, the weather breaks clear. Captain Dufek sends another PBM into the area heretofore shrouded in fog. At last, in clear visibility, the pilots and men scan water and pack ice along the Phantom Coast. Wherever they are, the nine men of the George I have been lost almost two weeks. Hope is thin. Five hours out, Commander Howell, the pilot, spots smoke, a signal fire. Some are alive down there. How badly hurt? How many live? George I, smashed. Wreckage scattered, some of it burned. And a message on the wing. Lopez, Henderson, William. Dead. No seaplane can land on the ice. Can the survivors reach open water? Powell must drop a message. We'll land barrier's edge ten miles north. We'll drop flags to mark trail. If you can walk it, form circle. If not, form line. Powell knows the gravity of the decision Captain Caldwell must reach. But if the men can walk, a day may be saved. A precious day for the engine. Powell flashes the news. Captain Dufek gets the word and gives it to the Pine Island by loudspeaker. Attention all hands. This is the task group commander speaking. Mariner George 1 has been sighted. Rescue operations are in progress. Powell circles his PBM over the wreckage. He watches for his answer. A huddle of men breaks apart. They've reached a decision. It's a circle. They'll try the 10-mile trek to board the PBM at the water's edge. Powell's crew have the relief gear ready now for the men below. Cargo chutes float the heavy packages down. First aid boxes, rations, skis, blankets. For men hungry, cold, hurt, and losing hope, the chutes are as lovely as shining stars. Symbols of life restored, of return to families who've been waiting and praying. Now to mark the trail. PBM's crew have hundreds of flags, each weighted to land and stay upright. If fog should again close in on this desolate coast, there must be no second disaster, no wandering from the road to rescue. The survivors follow the trail marker. Five able to walk, one on a sled, ten miles to go. These men are marching out of the shadow of death into the sunshine of life. Aboard the rescue plane, ready to leave the barrier edge, the survivors, six thankful men, jerk out their story in bits and flashes. How Henderson, Lopez, and Williams died in the crash and explosion. 
when they smashed up Milk Bowl Disability. Now they found scattered cans of food, stove, fuel to keep it going, and one tube of sulfur tablets, just enough to keep Frenchy LeBlanc, their gravely injured pilot, barely alive. Proudly, they tell how Captain Caldwell consulted them all in dividing their little food, how he kept watch, inspired their faith, and how they prayed, as men always do, when there is no other hope but prayer. Bill Kearns, co-pilot, grins hello. First off is Frenchy LeBlanc. Foremen carry him tenderly in a stoke stretcher. War and Robbins pulled him out of the blazing nose of the plane, but his back, hands, and face suffered third-degree burns and in the Gethsemane of waiting for rescue, both legs were frozen to the knees. Amputation is inevitable, but he will live. The ship's company of the Pine Island greets their skipper, Captain Caldwell, observer on flight. He says no ship ever looked so good to him as his own command, as again he sets foot on her decks. His executive officer greets him with sincere affection. Captain Dufek warmly welcomes the survivors. O-pilot Kearns, broken arm in a sling. Carty, Tarkin, War, the radio operator. And smiling Shorty Robbins, the motor mech. The head is warm. Hot bath, clean sheets, and long hours of restoring sleep. And perhaps first, a moment to splice the main brace by which good sailors mean a ration of medicinal spirits, bourbon youth. Later in sickbay, all but Frenchie and Captain Caldwell enjoy their first full meal in two weeks. Kearns will go to Georgetown University to study for a career in diplomacy. McCarthy, who has a wife and two children in Sonoma, sunny California, beams happily. Robbins, who was the wheel horse in those desperate days, figures to keep on flying. He still loves and Bohr knows that he will marry his school teacher's sweetheart back in Reading, Pennsylvania. News of the rescue finds the icebreaker with Admiral Cruzen fighting her way through thickening ice to pick up Admiral Byrd and his men at Little America. Byrd has radioed for all speed. At the base, the Admiral supervises Operation Secure. All essential records and scientific instruments are to be taken home. The planes must remain. They are stripped down with the hope that another American expedition future year may find them of use. Supply dumps are marked by poles. And now through the capes comes the old reliable workhorse, the icebreaker. Final loading is the order. All roads lead to the bay. Last trip down. The last long trek through the snow for the big go-devil sledges loaded with men and equipment. The excitement that always comes with sailing infects all hands, including the dogs. They sniff something important is in the wind. With normal quarters for 75, the icebreaker must jam aboard the additional 197 men of the base body until after the voyage north, she can transfer personnel to the big ships awaiting her at Scott Island. Bird is among the last aboard. He can now report to Admiral Nimitz, Operation High Jump completed. Our men have achieved accomplishments unparalleled in the history of discovery. Our central group has flown far beyond the South Pole, mapped one-third million square miles never before seen by man. Our eastern group mapped 3,000 miles of phantom coast, 
and charted 40,000 square miles of coastal ocean areas hitherto unknown. Our Western group, flying hundreds of air hours, mapped the 4,000-mile sunset coast, made the amazing discovery of warm land in Antarctica. In all, the expedition explored more than a million and a half square miles. Our scientists, by use of the radar magnetic detector, have pinpointed fabulous treasures and resources of great significance for all mankind. The men who did the job, Navy, Army, Air Corps, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and scientists, are going tired men. The rear guard of Admiral Byrd's intrepid 4,000, veterans of the Antarctic, trained to combat the sub-zero enemy of the polar continent. They're going home to their mothers, sweethearts, wives, children. Home, strong in the knowledge that they have met the Antarctic's heaviest battalions and conquered. This is to be their lifelong reward, this knowledge and the Navy's highest commendation. Well done. <laughs> And we're back. Man, the Internet Archive has some has so many hidden gems. And real quick, I must mention again, if you want the truth, don't use Google. Use Yandex or Brave Browser. Just throwing that out there. And now, Operation Paperclip. Five things about Operation Paperclip. Um, one, the objectives. Operation Paperclip conducted by the United States after World War II aimed to recruit German scientists engineers, and technicians, including former Nazis, Nazis, to work for American government agencies. Tell me how messed up that is. Um, two, expertise. The operation targeted individuals who specialized in various fields such as rocketry, aerospace, aerospace engineering, and medicine. Number three, assistance. Many of the scientists recruited through Operation Paperclip made significant contributions to the American space program, missile development, and advancements in fields like medicine and technology. Number four, excuse me, number four, controversy. The operation had been criticized due to the involvement of former Nazis and the moral implications of absolving their war crimes. Five, legacy. Operation Paperclip 
played a significant role in bolstering U.S. technological advancements during the Cold War. Okay. Now, I got a link. I'll put all the links in the show notes so you can go read it yourself if you would like to do so. This is from conspiracyarchive.com, Operation Paperclip Case File. <coughs> they say, after World War II ended in 1945, victorious Russian and American intelligence teams began a treasure hunt throughout occupied Germany for military and scientific booty. They were looking for things like new rocket and aircraft designs, medicines, and electronics. But they were also hunting down the most precious spoils of all, the Nazis whose work had nearly won the war for Germany. The engineers and intelligence officers of the Nazi war machine. Now the U.S. military rounded up Nazi scientists and brought them to America. It had originally intended merely to debrief them and send them back to Germany. But when it, but when it realized the extent <coughs> of scientists' no, knowledge and expertise, the War Department decided it would be a waste to send the scientists home. Following the discovery of flying disc Foo Fighters, particle-slash-laser beam weaponry in German military bases, the War Department decided that NASA and the CIA must control this technology and the Nazi engineers that had worked on this technology. Come on now. There was only one problem. It was illegal. U.S. law explicitly prohibited Nazi officials from immigrating to America, and as many as three-quarters of the scientists in question had been committed Nazis. Okay, so they say data points. Convinced that the German scientists could help America's post-war efforts, President Harry Truman agreed in September 1946 to authorize Project Paperclip, a program to bring selected German scientists to work on America's behalf during the Cold War. However, Truman expressly, Truman expressly excluded anyone found to have been a member of the Nazi Party and more than a nominal participant in its activities, or as an active supporter of Nazism or militarism. The War Department's Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency conducted background investigations of the scientists. In February 1947, the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency Director Bosquet Webb submitted the first set of scientist dossiers to the state and Justice Departments for review. Now, 
the dossiers were damning. Samuel Klaus, the State Department's representative of the JIOA board, claimed that all the scientists in this first batch were ardent Nazis. The visa requests were denied. Now, Webb was furious. He wrote a memo warning that the best interests of the United States have been subjugated to the efforts expanded in beating a dead Nazi horse. He also declared the return of these scientists to Germany, where they could be exploited by America's enemies, presented a far greater security threat to this country than any former Nazi affiliations, which they may have had, or even any Nazi sympathies that they may still have. Now, while the JIOA formed to investigate the backgrounds and form dossiers on the Nazis, the Nazi intelligence leader, Reinhard Gellin, Gielen, met with the CI director, Alan Dulles. Dulles and Gellin hit it off immediately. Gellin was a master spy for the Nazis and infiltrated Russia with his vast Nazi intelligence network. Dulles promised Gellin that his intelligence unit was safe in the CIA. Now, apparently, Webb decided to sidestep the problem. Dulles had the scientist dossiers rewritten to eliminate incriminating evidence. As promised, Alan Dulles delivered the Nazi intelligence unit to the CIA, which later opened many umbrella projects stemming from Nazi mad. Nazi-made research, like MKUltra, Artichoke, Operation Midnight, Climax. Those will be for another day. Military intelligence cleansed the files of Nazi references. By 1955, more than 760 German scientists had been granted citizenship in the United in the U.S. and given prominent positions in the American scientific community. Many had been longtime members of the Nazi party and the Gestapo, Gestapo did experiments on humans at concentration camps, had used slave labor, and had committed other war crimes. In 1985, in a 1985 expose in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Linda Hunt wrote that she had examined more than 130 reports on Project Paperclip subjects and every one had been changed to eliminate the security threat classification. So they went through and changed all their dossiers to say that they were cool to come over. Way to go, America. How, excuse me. Now, President Truman, who had unexpectedly ordered no committed Nazis to be admitted under Project Paperclip, was evidently never aware that his, direct, his directive had been violated. State Department archives 
and the memoirs of officials from that era confirm this, in fact, according to Clarence Lasty's book, Project Paperclip, project officials covered their designs with such secrecy that it bedeviled their own president. At post-dom, he denied their activities and undoubtedly enhanced Russian suspicion and distrust, quite, quite possibly fueling the Cold War even further. A good example of how these dossiers were changed is the case of Warner Von Braun. Boom. A September 18, 1947 report on the German rocket scientist stated, Subject is regarded as a potential security threat by the military governor. The following February, a new security evaluation of Von Braun said, No derogatory information is available on the subject. It is the opinion of the military governor that he may not constitute a security threat to the United States. And then, you can go through and look. They have a few of the 700 suspicious characters who were allowed to immigrate through Project Paperclip. I'll just name a few. Arthur Rudolph, Warner Von Braun, Kurt Bloom, Major General Walter Schreiber. I mean, there's so many. And you can see all the stuff they did for the Nazis. Yeah. Pretty messed up. You know? So that's Project Paperclip. In case you didn't know. And so the reason I wanted to do it in this order is because all these operations and everything, Antarctica, the treaty, NASA, it's all going to come back to flat Earth. All of it proves flat Earth. But continuing on, The last thing I want to talk about, the last thing I want to talk about today is Operation Deep Freeze. Now, five things about Operation Deep Freeze. Um, the duration, the United States Antarctic program began in 1955 and continues still to this day. to this day. By the way, I gotta have my sunglasses on because I gotta have it bright. And I don't want it to be blind in my eyes. Okay, number two, the purpose. Operation Deep Freeze aimed to establish a year-round American presence in Antarctica, focusing on scientific research, logistics, and maintaining stations. Um, three, research and exploration. 
the operation facilitated important contributions to Antarctic science, including climate studies, geology, biology, and astrophysics. Um, four, logistic challenges. Operation Deep Freeze involved establishing and maintaining multiple research stations, overcoming harsh weather, and navigating or navigational obstacles. Five, cooperation. Over the years, several countries have joined in the operation, partnering with the United States to conduct scientific research and ensure the safety of personnel working in Antarctica. And thanks to the Internet Archive, I do have one last video. It is U.S. Navy Operation Deep Freeze, 1955 through 56, Antarctica Mission. And It's a video behind Operation Deep Freeze. It was during the International Geophysical Year, 1957 through 58. It was known as a collaborative effort among 40 nations to carry out Earth science studies from the North Pole and the South Pole at points and at points in between. The United States, along with New Zealand, the United Kingdom, France, Japan, Norway, Chile, Argentina, and the USSR agreed to go to the South Pole, the least explored area on Earth. And so, this video is going to tell you all about degrees and what they did. I believe it's only like 20 minutes long. And then after that, we'll come in and we'll say our goodbyes. Enjoy the video. Bitch. This is Antarctica, nearly six million square miles of ice-covered wasteland, larger than the United States and Europe combined. Less than one-third of this great continent has been explored. Previous expeditions have discovered indications of coal, iron, and other minerals in this last frontier. Its mean elevation is 6,000 feet, but some of its mountain peaks rise above 15,000 feet. It is the highest and coldest continent in the world. In Antarctica, scientists hope to find the answers to many questions which will unlock secrets of the universe. The International Geophysical Year 
is a combined effort of scientists of more than 60 nations to gain knowledge of the Earth and related phenomena by worldwide simultaneous observation. One of the most extensive of all international geophysical year investigations is taking place in the Antarctic region, with 11 nations participating. In an effort to help find answers to these questions, the United States Antarctic Programs was conceived, and by direction of the President of the United States, Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd, veteran polar explorer, was named officer in charge. The Navy was assigned the task of logistic support for the program. Task Force 43 was organized under Commander-in-Chief Atlantic Fleet to implement the operation, which was assigned the code name Operation Deep Freeze. Rear Admiral George Duthbeck was appointed commander Task Force 43 with the responsibility to construct bases, operate them, supply and resupply them, and transport scientists to and from Antarctica. The major objectives of Operation Deep Freeze 1 were to establish a main IGY base near the site of the former Little Americas and an air facility at McMurdo Sound, investigate Marie Birdland and the South Pole for suitable scientific observation posts, to support a planned U.S. scientific program in the Antarctic, and provide logistic support for the United States participation in IGY. The USS Arneb, a.k.a. 56, Admiral Dufek's flagship, was one of nine ships constituting Task Force 43's ship group. The others were USS Wyandotte, a.k.a. 92, USNS Greenville Victory, USS Nesplin, AOG 55, and the icebreakers, USS Edisto, AGB 2, USS Glacier, AGB 4, and the East Wind, a Coast Guard icebreaker. And finally, two yard oilers, the YOG 70 and 34, were each loaded with 270,000 gallons of aviation fuel to be used as Antarctic filling stations for the air unit. The Task Force Air Unit, Air Development Squadron 6, commanded by Commander Gordon Ebby, consisted of two R5D Skymasters, four R4D Skytrains, two P2V Neptune as well as four de Havilland Otters and six HO-4S-3 helicopters carried aboard the task force's ship. At the Atlantic Fleet's Construction Battalion Center, Davisville, Rhode Island, a special mobile construction battalion was commissioned by Admiral Dufek with Commander Herbert Whitney, commanding officer of the unit. These CBs had the responsibility of constructing all of the bases in the Antarctic. They were trained in cold weather construction. But the Antarctic, notorious for its unpredictability, will pose many problems for them. Here, Commander Whitney reads his orders, assigning him as commanding officer. Mrs. Dufek is accorded the honor of carrying old glory in the changing of the color ceremony. Miss Julia Hawks, selected by the crew as co-sponsor, representing the women who must remain behind, carried the battalion flag. Families and friends are afforded an opportunity to see some of the unique equipment that will be carried on the expedition. 
It's a 10,000-mile trip down there. And in three months, this weasel will be moving across the polar plateau. Junior checks it out, while Mom inspects this tent. Roller will be used to build airstrips on snow-covered ice fields. A winterized portable building. This will be used on the trail for a mess hall and radio communication. In August 1955, the task of receiving, packaging, and loading the ships of Task Force 43 began at Davisville, Rhode Island. Here were loaded an estimated 20,000 measurement tons of cargo, bulk petroleum products, and the Antarctic life preserver's sled dog. First departure at Davisville in early September was marked by the excitement and sadness of farewell. Many of these families will be separated for over a year, and the separation will be spanned only by intermittent mail and wireless communication. From September until mid-November, this scene was repeated as task force ships departed from various east and west coast ports. On November 14th at Norfolk, Admiral Byrd spoke at departure ceremonies for the Arneb, Admiral Dufek's flagship. En route to polar waters, the icebreaker glacier passed through the Panama Canal, where she took aboard a load of bamboo. Later, at sea, the bamboo was cut into strips. It will be used as trail and supply dump markers in the deep snow. Other preparations for the expedition were carried on at sea. Here sleds are being rigged. In equatorial waters, the routine was interrupted by the traditional ceremonies conducted by King Neptune and his court. Polywogs were put through the appropriate ritual of initiation required of all sailors crossing the equator for the first time. Among the Operation Deep Freeze personnel were several foreign officers. Here they inspect the Navy's newest and most powerful icebreaker. In warm tropical waters, religious services were conducted on the open deck. And on at least one occasion, the ship paused far out in the Pacific, while crew members took a dip and acquired tans that they hoped would last out the Antarctic winter. The crew of the little YOGs were deprived of many of the comforts and conveniences offered by the bigger ships. Here a line is shot to the vessel. And a high line is raked to send supplies across. Two of these vessels were towed to the Antarctic. 
Life aboard them was rough, wet, and lonely. Thanksgiving Day aboard the ships was celebrated in the South Pacific, far from a supermarket. But the ship's mess tables were amply provided with a traditional bird and trimming. The USS Glacier arrived at Port Littleton, New Zealand, December the 7th, 1955. Here she was joined by Captain Gerald L. Ketchum, Deputy Task Force Commander, and Admiral Byrd. On December 10th, the glacier began the final leg of its journey to Antarctica, as hundreds of New Zealanders gathered at the pier to bid the ship and its crew a bon voyage. Six days later, the glacier received her baptism of ice near Scott Island when she entered the ice pack. December 18th, the task force sighted the Antarctic continent when Mount Erebus, the only known active volcano in the Antarctic, towering 13,000 feet above McMurdo Sound, came into view. The glacier moored to the ice, and its helicopter flew a survey party ashore to find an area on the bay ice suitable for a long, flat runway that would support the weight of the large planes of the air unit. Commander Abbey and Commander Whitney surveyed an 8,000-foot strip of ice at the south end of McMurdo Sound. They tested its thickness with a gas-powered chainsaw to determine if the ice would support heavy planes without speed. This site was found to be suitable. It was located immediately north of the 1902 expedition camp of Royal Navy Captain Robert Scott, leader of the second party to reach the pole. Food stores left here by the Scott party over a half century ago were found to be perfectly preserved and quite edible. The glacier then unloaded vehicles and materials for the establishment of a temporary base camp to support CB and air contingents until permanent buildings were completed. Some permanent inhabitants arrived to discharge their ambassadorial duties by greeting and entertaining the visiting delegation from the United States. The emperors are the best known year-round inhabitants of the Antarctic. Penguins are equipped with built-in toboggans for traveling over the snow. This Adeli penguin rookery was located less than one half mile from the glacier's mooring. With the completion of the airstrip, Captain Ketchum and party transferred to the ice to await the arrival of the Edisto. From this ship, he would direct operations in the air. The USS Edisto arrived soon after the glacier departed McMurdo Sound to furnish logistic support for air operations and construction parties. The offloading began immediately. Supplies, equipment, and materials were unloaded for transportation to the temporary camp and airstrip site. The sled dogs were happy to be in their element and were eager to go. Surface vehicles began moving materials over the bay ice to the airstrip and permanent base site. December 20, the aircraft made their fly-in, guided along the 2,200 miles by ship stationed at 300-mile intervals. Four aircraft arrived without mishap. Headwinds forced four of the smaller aircraft to turn back to New Zealand. Aircraft have now flown non-stop from a large landmass into the Antarctic continent for the first time in history. The glacier proceeded from its ocean station to Scott Island, and on Christmas Day, rendezvoused with the other ships of the task force north of the ice pack. Rear Admiral Dupec greeted Admiral Byrd as he transferred from the Arnab to the glacier to command the transit of the task force. 
the mighty glacier led the column through the ice patch. Clearing the pack four days later, the task force was met by the Edisto, which led the Wyandotte and Nespelin into McMurdo Sound. The glacier escorted the Arneb at Greenville Victory on to Canaan Bay, 450 miles to the east. December 28th, the Wyandotte and Nespelin arrived in McMurdo Sound and sent a mooring party ashore to bury timbers, called dead men, for attaching the ship mooring lines. After the long flight from New Zealand, an even more hazardous task was undertaken. Aircraft taxied 30 miles directly to the tanker Nespelin to expedite flight operations and take full advantage of the little remaining good weather. Refueling at the ship, the aircraft were on ice only four feet thick, over water 1,800 feet deep. A temporary camp was established and air operations commenced immediately. An R-5D using wheels rather than skis makes a jet assist takeoff, beginning a long-range exploratory mission. In less than one month, pilots of EX-6 mapped and photographed over a million square miles of territory, never before seen by human eyes. Later, Admiral Byrd, Dr. Paul Seipel, and other Antarctic old-timers paid a visit to the site of Little America One and Two. They located this radio tower, built during Byrd's 1929 expedition. When first erected, it stood 75 feet above the surface of the snow. On January 4, 1956, Little America was officially commissioned by Admiral Byrd and Admiral Dufay. The glacier, after carving out a mooring in Canaan Bay for the cargo ship, was ordered by Admiral Dufek to McMurdo Sound to assist Captain Ketchum. For 10 days, the Edisto and the Coast Guard East Wind attempted to cut a channel through the ice of McMurdo to within a reasonable distance of the base site at Hut Point. During this time, only 14 miles had been gained. The glacier went to work on the ice. It takes immense power and tons of weight to accomplish the feat of crushing acres of ice, ranging from 10 to 12 feet thick. These scenes taken from the ice show you the power of the glacier. An icebreaker, contrary to popular idea, does not break ice by cutting through it, but is so designed that the bow will ride up on the ice. And in a porpoising action, the sheer weight of the ship crushes and cleaves through the ice. In 48 hours, he came within six miles of the base and established an offloading point and a turnaround circuit. The 30-mile artery through the ice was named Glacier Channel. Since bay ice did not move out into the open sea as anticipated, it was too risky to bring the cargo ships into the channel. Therefore, the three icebreakers were required to shuttle supplies from the ships through the channel to the offloading point. Here at Glacier Point, the cargo is unloaded for transfer to the base site. The unloading operation involved a calculated risk. The glacier's cargo handling equipment, designed for only 12 tons, lowered a 24-ton D8 tractor. The risk paid off. Cargo moved the six miles to the camp, loaded in tractor trains. This operation involved many hazards because of the treacherous bay ice. Finally, on January 14th, the first load of building materials and supplies arrived at the base site, and one of the mates 
The warm weather caused melting and weakening of the ice, until finally the temporary cache was in danger. Admiral Dufek ordered everything transported to the firmer shelf ice on the double. Every available tractor, carry lift, and helicopter was pressed in. Within 48 hours, all of the cargo had been moved to Lafayette. Only a short time before the bay ice broke up and floated out to sea. In the construction of bases, the CBs lived up to their can-do reputation. With the building area leveled, foundations were laid for the special type buildings which would be the living, operating, and recreational facilities for a long, long winter night. Floors were laid and walls erected. They look thin, but special insulation and expert construction make them snow kite. Roofs must be especially strong to support the heavy accumulation of snow throughout the three years' occupancy. Tractors cleared the area between the buildings of snow and ice so a tunnel system could be built. An elaborate tunnel system was built to connect all of the buildings and serve as storage spaces. Both here and at McMurdo Sound, 250,000 gallon fuel tanks were constructed to serve as storage for aviation fuel to be used in Operation Deep Freeze II. When completed, these tanks were filled from the USS Nesplin, moored about four miles away. The problem of transporting fuel four miles was met by using several collapsible fuel hose storage tanks provided by the Marine Corps. This tank, when unrolled and filled, holds 10,000 gallons. Gasoline was pumped to these tanks, and by increasing the pressure at booster stations with auxiliary pumps, was finally brought to the huge fuel tank at Hut Point through portable pipelines. This experimental crevasse detector, designed to give a signal when a crevasse was approached, proved not completely reliable when used by trail parties. The loss of an otter-supporting aircraft and the failure of the crevasse detector delayed the Marie Birdland trail expedition. With winter weather setting in, the project was postponed until Deep Freeze 2. To climax the activities of Operation Deep Freeze 1, the glacier, with Admiral Dufek aboard, made a notable cruise around the Antarctic continent. The purpose of this voyage was to locate suitable sites for more IGY stations to be established in later operations. Survey crews, returning from surveying a possible site on the Knox coast, experienced the sudden fury of an Antarctic blizzard, a vanguard of the fast-approaching polar weather. Their small craft fought through the icy seas to the side of the glacier and was finally hoisted safely aboard. The glacier's crews around the continent brought Deep Freeze 1 to a successful conclusion, and she pointed her bow north leaving behind 73 men at the Little America base and 93 sailors and scientists at the Naval Air Facility in McMurdo Sound. With the wintering over party were 1,500 tons of supplies and materials to sustain them through the coming year of isolation from the rest of the world. Some of these materials will go into the construction of bases at the South Pole and Marie Birdland before ships return to the Antarctic. At the base of Observatory Hill, men prepared for the bitter cold and the violent winds of the long winter night. 
and at sea, the glacier plunged northward into warmer, ice-free water. Her destination, the United States, where she would be fitted out for Operation Deep Freeze Two. All right, so that concludes episode 16, Operation High Jump, Paperclips, Deep Freeze. I'm your host, Georgie350. This is season two, God is Real, and the Earth is Flat. Thank you for joining the dopest podcast in the Midwest. And I'd like to thank you for bearing with me as I figure out how to do all these videos and whatnot, but I promise they'll keep getting better and better. Stay tuned for episode 17, NASA. Brief Antarctic Treaty, we already talked about that. Fishbowl, Apollo 11. And get ready for my exclusive video subscription episode premiere coming soon. And as always, hit him with the outro, bitch. Made a lot of math, can't swear I'm at. You can say I'm whack, it's just not a fact. Can tell if I'm awake or I'm in a dream. I just know I'm beat on amphetamines. Never was a habit, now I got a